Welcome to episode 80 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Robert Yost, founder and president at American Wind. American Wind has developed a state-of-the-art micro-ducted wind turbine, the MicroCube. The technology is a complete thought change in the industry, Instead of bigger turbines farther away from the point of use, wind power can now be generated at the point of consumption. They developed a generator that is not only small, but tremendously powerful. Their one kilowatt generator fits into a space of just three inches in diameter. Robert Yost, using his background in designing jet engine turbines, developed a blade design that uses both airfoil technology and jet turbine technology. This combination allows his turbine to start generating at a wind speed lower than other turbines on the market, which means the turbine is creating power through a larger range of wind speeds. Please take extra care during the holidays. COVID infections continue to increase most places in the world, so be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind, and take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm here with Robert Yost, president of American Wind. Robert, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. What motivated you to get engaged in the fight against climate change? Well, the beginning of this happened on April 27, 2011. North Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and Tennessee encountered about 280 tornadoes in a single day. It took down a lot of the infrastructure. We lost three 500 kVA towers coming from Brown's Ferry Nuclear Power Plant and basically shut this community down for two and a half weeks. So what do you do with no power for two and a half weeks? It's difficult. No gas stations for gas, no ATMs to go get money. There was just a lot of things. You couldn't even use your credit cards in stores because they had no communications. So what do you do when you have an outbreak of something this disastrous happen in a community? I can only imagine what people around the world go through day in and day out without communication electricity. So that was the beginning of this whole project. My wife and I were sitting on the back deck after the storms, and we were watching a pedestal fan. She was watching the pedestal fan blow in the breeze. And she turned around and looked at me, and she says, why can't we harness the power of that to create electricity? And I says, I don't know. I've never thought about that. So that was really the beginning that started us down the road of trying to build something that we could have in our local communities that did not 
destroy the view of our properties. And do you have something personal that drives you? Basically, my background, I'm a Christian, okay? And my background is that we're supposed to be good stewards of the environment. God created this world and everything. And from the birds in the sky to the fishes in the sea, everything in between, it's all part of creation. And we need to be taking care of that. The entire planet needs to be taken care of at the same time. When you meet people that don't believe that there is climate change and don't believe this is an issue or don't believe the data, how do you convince them otherwise? Climate change is important. We forget that the environment is the critical part here. Climate change is a piece of all of that. But we got to worry about the entire environment. All of the environment goes together. And if we lose one piece of it, we have a situation where we don't create what we need to have in a society. We don't have food. We can't go to work. Like, for instance, it's going on right now in the West Coast with all the fires. We have a lot of CO2 emissions coming out of all the forest fires that's going on out there. Well, that's a part of climate change right now. Why can't we fix that? I mean, there's got to be ways of helping that part of the environment. We as humans, there's a lot of reckless things that we do in our life. And I think that society doesn't believe that they affect anything. But I think our society as a whole affects it day in and day out. The cars we drive, how we live, the temperature of our homes, all of that's important pieces to the climate equation. So when people disagree with you on that, how do you convince them otherwise? Well, you can take a look at the environment today. We all know things are changing, okay? The climate is changing, but it has changed for many, many years as well. You go back to in Oklahoma, where they had the Dust Bowl. That was a huge climate change, but that's been 50 years ago, 70 years ago. So climate is always changing from one point to another in the United States and around the world. You look at North Africa, we're seeing more and more drought areas in North Africa. The green belt is slipping slower and slower south. So climate is changing and our environment is changing. All you gotta do is just look over the past history and see that it happens. What do you do at American Wind? What does the company do? Basically, we create a micro wind turbine. The micro wind turbine is a small wind turbine that creates electricity. It's about nine and a quarter inches squared. It's about 13 inches long. It creates electricity from very, very low wind speeds of one and a half mile per hour all the way through tested up to 140 mile per hour wind speeds. We can generate literally anywhere in the world Alabama has some of the worst wind in the United States. Our natural wind here is about four miles per hour every day. We get tornadoes in here where we have wind speeds of 100 miles an hour. So we have this huge span between very, very low winds and very, very high winds. Traditional wind turbines don't work so well. Even solar does not work very well because we have a lot of cloudy days. So that's part of the issue that we have in this part of the world. What I wanted to do was create a product that one, was not visually offensive to people, my neighbors, that's easy to install and it can be built incrementally into a larger system. So you can go from one kilowatt all the way up to megawatts in power. And that's what our product is 
set around. It also takes up a lot less space, which I think is pretty exciting. That is very true. The big one turbines, about a megawatt and a half, takes up about 32 acres of land. Our particular wind turbine, when you put it on the same acreage, we can do 19 megawatts on a single acre. The only power density that's out there in the marketplace that can get that kind of density per acre is nuclear power. We're the closest to nuclear power production of any green energy technology. If you take solar, solar is massively more expansive than even the big wind turbines. Sometimes some of the same people that are excited about getting renewable energy out there also are trying to protect birds and they don't like the sound pollution, so wind isn't at the top of their list. Can you talk about that? One of the things we started out in our product was we needed to do several things. One is we needed to make certain that our technology was small in size, that it didn't take up much land, it needed to have an adequate amount of power. It had to have very low environmental impacts. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. The cost had to be relatively inexpensive, and it had to have a life. One of my problems with today's society is we throw everything away. We throw our cell phones away basically once a year. Our cars have changed every two to three years. Our society has gotten to a throwaway society. We can't afford to continue to do that. We don't have the resources to maintain that. Now, I have to credit my wife on this particular situation. She believed in our technology and what we were trying to do, that she went off and took her 401k savings and poured it into this company to build the very first wind turbine. She built the first prototype. She paid for it. Again, we wanted the technology to be small so that you could put it in a local home or on top of a business. We wanted it to be very close. 30% of our electricity is lost in the transmission just to get it to your home or your business or whatever. The electrical manufacturing facilities or electrical production facilities are located so far away that they lose a lot of energy just getting it to you. The other thing is that it had to be a product that be quiet. The big wind turbines, if you're standing 100 meters away, they're at 100 decibels. Our particular microcube run at about 44 decibels, which is equivalent to about a quiet library. It's, it's very, very quiet technology. So literally, you can put it up in a home and your neighbors won't be bothered by your technology. I grew up in central part of California, and I lived with the big condors and the golden eagles that were out there. And I love seeing those majestic birds fly. And it really hurt me that the technology that we have in place today for wind actually does harm to those birds. And not only birds, but bats. The one thing we had to do with our product was to make certain that we wouldn't harm the wildlife. So our units are about eight inches in diameter. In fact, a golden eagle could actually haul one of ours off in its talons. <laughs> the other part of it is, is that we needed materials that we build these products out of that were not impacting the environment. I'm more of an environmentalist, not necessarily a climate person. Mine is looking at the entire picture. So one of the things we looked at was what do we use in our product to make certain that if these products do go to a landfill, that we didn't affect 
other people's lives down the road. We don't want it to get into the water tables. We don't want it to create gases coming out of it. A lot of plastic materials that are still being used today actually use a material called sulfur hexafluoride. It's called SF6. That material inside of plastics, if you throw that into a landfill, the landfill will actually outgas this material and it's worse than about a thousand cars driving on the road. It is very, very toxic material. Fortunately, automobile companies started some investigation on this and they figured out a way to not use SF6 because they figured a lot of their parts would go into the landfill. Well, if you have all this in the landfill and it lasts years and years and years, what are you going to do with all of this toxic chemicals coming out of the ground? So one of the things we decided to do was build our products that had no impact on the environment. We start working with a new product called Atlas. And Atlas is a space-age material. It's built here in Huntsville, Alabama. It's actually non-corrosive, non-conductive. It's fire-resistant. So if you have the forest fires and the wildfires that's going on in California, our products will not even see that. It literally will not burn up, and you still get power creation from the units. Nice part about our technology. It's also UV resilient. It's lasting about 100 years out there in the environment. The people that are working with it, they were tested out at Oak Ridge National Labs. They saw that with Oak Ridge National Labs, it has a 100-year life. So it doesn't go away just overnight. We wanted a product to last 30-plus years. In fact, you can recycle it and run several hundred years beyond that with our products. You talked a little bit about the idea for the product. Can you talk more about your journey to where you are today? Basically, the journey started when I was pretty young out in California. When I was growing up, we were required to work alongside our father. And my father was a cement mason. He poured a lot of concrete there in California. And we were required as children to be out there working with him day in and day out. He was an entrepreneur in the beginning. And I learned a lot from working for him. In fact, myself and my younger brother, we also had crews that we ran to help the business operate. So we did that. In the early years, I was a freshman in high school, we left California and moved to Oklahoma. My father wanted to get out of California for various reasons. I don't really understand his reasoning behind it. We moved to southeastern Oklahoma, where I will say that I met my wife. She was my next-door neighbor. This year is 45 years of happy marriage. Girl next door. Girl next door. We graduated from Oklahoma University in mechanical engineering, and I started my life down in the oil field world. So I'm one of those bad guys that was helping drill for oil. But I still think oil is going to be necessary for years and years to come. There's plenty of things that oil is used for, but we don't need to use it for gas and petroleum, for fuel, for vehicles and things like that. We don't need to use it for that. We need to preserve that additional oil for other things. So I worked in the oil field industry through the boom and the bust. I stayed on. The company wanted to keep me on board. But I didn't see a future in the oil field at the point when the whole oil field crashed. And that was in the 86 timeframe. So I left there and went into software engineering. 
that's also part of my background. I went back to college in Houston and learned software engineering. So I have not only mechanical engineering, I have software engineering that I rely on. From that point, while I was in Houston, getting my training, NASA came to me and asked me to go to work for NASA and work on the space shuttle program at that point in time. I didn't want to do just sitting behind the screen and writing code. I was an engineer developing and creating things. I decided to move on and do something different. Eventually, I ended up here in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, Several of my bosses that I worked for in the oil field industry had moved here. They called me up one day and says, hey, come here to work for our company and run the engineering department here in Huntsville. And the first question I ask is, has this company ever had any layoffs? I says, oh, no, no, no. Pratt Whitney has been around. It's been 35 years since the company was in business, never had any layoffs. Okay, I'll come to Huntsville, Alabama. What's in Huntsville, Alabama? You know, everybody thinks it's Alabama. What could be there? Interestingly enough, Alabama, specifically Huntsville, is a very interesting place. And we enjoyed it. We have a house here. We've had a house for 30 years here. And we were very happy with what we've lived in. But that company lost all of its products they was building. We did the Tomahawk cruise missile. We did the advanced cruise missile. And with Bush Sr., he wanted to negotiate away the advanced cruise missile, which is a nuclear-based cruise missile. I thought in my mind, I don't have a problem with us getting rid of a nuclear-based cruise missile. I'm okay with that part of our production going out the window. But then shortly after that, the government decided that they were going to single source the Tomahawk cruise missile. And we lost the other side of our production. So the whole company, while I was only there seven years, folded underneath my feet. But another company was a small disadvantaged business here in town, decided to take over the lease and started building some products. We won the Space Shuttle External Tank Program, that orange tank. Those are some of the products that I built. And I'm very proud that I can say that I was involved in that, seeing it be used for so many years. That company went through some hard difficulties, and I left there and went to work for McDonnell Douglas up in St. Louis, working on jet fighters. Worked there for a few years, and then I went to General Electric Aircraft Engines, built aircraft engines for GE. And then the guys at Boeing called me back. So I went back and worked at Boeing again, and then I got into software engineering at Boeing, and then eventually ended back here in Huntsville, Alabama again, doing software engineering. And 2012 is when the tornadoes hit, and that's when we started creating the wind turbines. It's pretty amazing because none of the background experience was very environmentally focused, although I'm sure that was there as who you are. But all that experience that you had came together to basically launch this company. Yes, yes, absolutely. From the foundations, the cement that I poured with my father out in California, the foundations that we used to put our wind turbines on is cement foundations. So all of that knowledge that I learned when I was seven, eight, nine years old, I'm using today. The software engineering that I learned along the way We use software inside of our technology to monitor everything that's going on. The jet turbine engine is part of our technology. Well, I use that inside of it. The one area that I did not have in all of my experience is how to build an electrical generator. I had zero experience in building that. And to some extent, I'm pretty happy that I didn't have that experience. 
because we built a generator that the U.S. Patent Office said has never, ever been built before in history. It's totally different. It works differently. And I had a lot of electrical engineers come to me and say, look, you can't build a generator that can run in series. And I says, okay, but I needed a generator that would run in series. So I kept working at it and lo and behold, with divine inspiration, we developed a generator that can run in series. And it has a lot of other benefits that will be used across our society in many, many different ways. The analogy that I use with my children is that as you live your life, you gather ingredients and you don't know what you're going to bake or cook with those ingredients. But then one day the opportunity presents itself and you're prepared. You have everything you need and you go for it. But what you're saying is you didn't learn about garlic and that's good because this recipe would have been really bad with garlic. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So it's, it's that learning process that you go through. And there's a scientist that talks about this. They call it a scientific explorer. And that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm a scientific explorer. I take an idea and I keep working at it and working at it and working at it until we bring it to fruition. And we have done a lot of improvements in our technology over this eight years that we started this project. The one thing that people don't realize that it takes time to develop something new. I have a lot of people that the first couple of years when I started developing this thing, they wanted to go to market with it immediately. It had to be done quickly. Well, I asked the question, does anybody know how long it took to build the very first light bulb? 76 years. Wow. To build the first generator was over 150 years. Building new technology isn't an overnight happening. It takes time to build something new because you're doing things that nobody else has ever done before. I'm on the board of a company called Pi Energy. They have a new type of solar material and it's been about 11 years they've been working on it. Shareholders want results already and they have results. It's been getting more efficient and more efficient and they have new versions of it and each prototype is better than the previous one and I think they're pretty close, but it's a brand new material that they're inventing. How could that happen overnight? It just can't. It cannot. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. When you're building something brand new, it takes time to build this brand new. I have a lot of investors as well, and they're wondering, well, why are you waiting so long to get this to marketplace? If you would have done this, this, and this, we would have already had it. Or if we would have brought this scientist in or that scientist in, we would have been able to do it. But literally, nobody understands what we're doing outside because it's never been done before. And explaining it to people is really difficult. And there's a lot of trade secrets in our technology as well. You talked about the setback when the Tomahawk missile went single source, mm -hmm. and it wasn't your company that got it, and they had to do massive layoffs. Can you talk about some other setbacks that you had? When we started this project, fortunately, the wind turbine blade itself, I knew how to build because I was building jet engines. So that was an easy part. So that wasn't a setback. That was really an easy way to get into it. That blade has been designed and been operating for seven years plus. However, the generator was the big setback. 
trying to get the generator to work and do what we wanted to do. It took a lot of time and a lot of figuring out what did work and what did not work. Fortunately, we used 3D printing of our products. So we can actually go to prototype and make prototype changes and see what those changes affect the product. So there's been a lot of trial and error and a lot of money spent just doing the prototyping for the product. We are now getting into production where we have production level parts. So we're kind of settling down in our technology. But we do have some new things that are coming out that's going to improve the technology even better than what we have today. You gave the example about how it took 75 years to do one thing and 100 to do something else. But one of the reasons that we can do it faster now is because we do have better tools. Computers are running simulations of different battery chemistries. They're able to test so many different chemistries in a much shorter time than you ever could have before. You have 3D printing, which is helping you Mm -hmm. basically redesign what the product is. Anytime you want, you can spin that. Well, one of the things we started out with the 3D printing company, we were one of the first companies trying to build precision products with 3D printing. I was asking for very close tolerance products coming out of 3D printing, and it took us a while to work with the company to get precision-based products. Not only precision, but repeatable products. So we could use that technology and improve upon our manufacturing operations. We also looked at this technology in how do we assemble our products? What do we need to do to take less time to put the products together? So we not only worked with the product design for its capabilities, we also worked with the 3D printing to manufacture it in a lower cost, in a quicker to assemble, easier for people to put together type situation. We want to automate the entire process as well. So we use the 3D printing piece of it to help us through and stage our automation technology as well. It is a discovery that I was not expecting. It's a very simple piece of technology. It goes back to things that Ernest Lawrence and Lawrence Livermore Labs did in the cyclotron. And after reading his background and what he was doing, I realized that successes that we're using is based upon technology he did many, many years ago. I didn't realize it when I started into it that we were doing that. It was until we got it completed and then researching what we did to show this is a pretty powerful piece of technology. When I used to interview people for job opportunities, I used to ask about the best team they were ever on, and they would describe these very long hours, very difficult problems, a lot of failure as the team they were most excited, that they had the best memories of. So it really is amazing how the biggest challenges really do result in the best successes. They really do. We've done a lot of experimentation. I've got a great team that I work with here. My family's very much involved in this organization. So we do this all together and we sit down and even if we're not at work, we're still talking about how to make this thing better yet. It's a constant process of improving things. With regard to the broader environmental world and climate change, when you look out 20, 30, 40 years, 
Where do you see the world? Well, hopefully with our technology, we see a whole lot better world. Okay, because we don't need the big wind turbines. We don't need the solar that takes up massive amount of land. I want to see that the fuel that we use is kind of goes away. When I started this company, my wife and I decided that we wanted to go into using an electric-based vehicles or hybrid vehicles. When we started the company, both of us got into it. I have a big suburban SUV that we used 80 gallons a month fuel, drive it back and forth to work, going to a hybrid vehicle, and we were 16 gallons of fuel every three months. So it was a huge change. But I see that as being the direction that we're all going to need to go. And we hope that our technology is going to lead that direction forward because it's got some ability that a lot of products don't have today. And we've got to improve the environment. We've got to improve people's lives. It'd be nice if we had these units to put into places like Africa where they need electricity to live their daily lives, for communication, for lights. Children can have lights and be able to read and learn and grow their country and their environment. Water, pumping water out of the ground. So kids don't have to spend all day dragging water from miles away in order to keep their family alive. Refrigeration, having refrigeration that you can keep your food good for longer periods of time. This technology can be so widespread, and we're beginning to see that a lot of countries are starting to look at our technology. How has the pandemic impacted what you do, what your company is doing, and how has the pandemic impacted how you see the world's environmental problems? Well, I see that, one, the pandemic really didn't affect us that much, but in other ways it did affect us. My wife and I, we continued to go to work every day. I did let the team stay home for about a couple of weeks until we decided that everybody was fine and then we brought everybody back to the office and we've been working in the office. But on the other hand, what it did cause is a lot of the projects that we were expecting to close on this year got pushed way out. The funding that has gone into getting rid of the pandemic, the PPE equipment and all of those ventilators and all of that that has been worked on over the last eight months, all of that money has gone into trying to correct this problem. And I think that's to some extent is not been great for the environment because I think it's taken away money that should be used back in the environment, but it's to correct the coronavirus that's out there. I don't think the coronavirus is the last one we're going to see. I think it's going to continue. But I think coronavirus has taught us one thing, that we need to take personal responsibility of our lives. We need to distance, somewhat isolate, wear masks. We need to do the things that protects not only ourselves, but one another. And also the coronavirus is a great example of something happening in a country far, far away, and all of us around the world are globally impacted by it. Something happening across the ocean can affect us here in the United States or anywhere in the world. It affects everybody. So we've got to think about ourselves as we're just a piece of this puzzle, and we're global citizens. We've got to think more globally as well. Just like with the pandemic, 
with climate change, with protecting our environment, we really have to find a way to work together because one little thing, one place, a butterfly flaps its wings, it changes a lot of things. We all have to be on the same page. We do. And there's going to be things like earthquakes that's going to happen, tsunamis. We have typhoons and hurricanes and things like that. It affects everybody all around the world. We're not just one isolated country anymore. We are really a global environment these days. If people want to know one thing they can do to help the environment, what is your advice? It's the same thing my wife and I did, was we went after hybrid vehicles. Go with less fuel being used and use technology like the hybrid vehicles. I'm sorry to say that the Ford Motor Company, who we bought our hybrid vehicle from, there's a plug-in hybrid for use for about six years. They've gone away from plug-in hybrids. I find that very disheartening because we loved our hybrid vehicle. And if you're going three months without buying fuel, hey, to me, that's the greatest thing in the world. They recently revealed an F-150 hybrid, and they say that next year they're going to have an F-150 all-electric. The all-electric stuff is great if you can get the mileage out of them. Okay, a lot of the all-electric vehicles have a limited range. I'm looking forward to the Tesla Cybertruck. <laughs> I put my $100 down for a 500-mile version. <laughs> Eventually, that will come to pass. We actually did some YouTube videos where we actually put the wind turbines on top of my hybrid vehicles and was driving down the road and charging the car with his wind turbines sitting on top of it. So it's an idea. Can we extend our range with technology? Uh, it's coming. We'll all figure this out. If you were to do that, would you lose more energy in drag than you would create from the wind turbine? Actually, a lot of people think that's the case. Okay, We put the wind turbines in a wind tunnel. And remember, my background comes from aircraft engines. So the air going out the backside of our wind turbines is faster than the air coming into it. It actually accelerates the air and actually pushes it forward. We did wind tunnel testing on it. And the wind tunnel testing with our wind turbines, they said it's the effect of a mirror on the outside of a car. Okay, well, we're going to put a couple of your turbines on electric vehicles, and we're going to coat them in Pi Energy's material, and boom, we've got it solved. <laughs> There's some really good technology that we could put to use. Very cool. Do you have any questions for me? A lot of people talk about the climate mitigation process, but where does that fit into the overall environment? I think we have one Earth. I'm stealing this from somebody I recently interviewed. We have one Earth, and we've really got to take care of it. We've really separated ourselves from nature in many ways, and it's just wonderful when you can get back in touch with it. The reason I'm focusing on climate change mitigation is because the things we're doing to the environment, it's more evident than ever that it's potentially ending our existence if we don't do something through extreme climate conditions. I recently interviewed somebody, Neil Belfay, who said if someone throws a grenade in your room, you don't know if it's live or not, but you're going to run or you're going to throw it out of the room because it may be alive. So even if you're not 100% sure of any of these issues, anybody should think it may happen based on what we're seeing. 
So we need to get the grenade out of there. And to me, climate change is the grenade. And there is a cause for that grenade, and that has to be addressed too. Right. Well, one of the things I'm concerned about is if you take things like the big wind turbines, they're great and wonderful. They produce a lot of electricity. But on the other hand, look at the wildlife that gets killed, the birds that gets killed by those big wind turbines. That is so terrible to see all of those animals being dead because of the wind turbines. Now they're working on that. They're working on ways to shut them off. But when you shut off those big wind turbines, you're taking a lot of electricity off the grid instantaneously. So what do you do to put that grid? The power doesn't go away. The power draw doesn't go away. So you have to have gas generators to supplant that additional power. Batteries, for instance, solar is good for about six to eight hours a day, depending upon the time of the year. So what do you do for the rest of the 18 hours in the day? Some people think we already have all the technology we need to solve this problem. And I don't. No, no, we don't. I think we have enough technology to begin moving forward and move hard because any carbon we defer helps with climate change. And I want to do that. But I think to ultimately solve it, we're going to need solutions like yours and many others that are being worked on to really nail this issue. But I think we can make a good run at it with what we have now. We could do a good start to it. My concern with batteries right now is they're so toxic to the environment. And what's going to happen, as you were asking earlier, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, are we setting up our children and grandchildren to deal with this impact on society, we throw batteries away in the garbage all the time. It's going in the landfills. They're not good for our landfills. They're not good for our environment. Do you have anything else you want to say? The U.S. government's doing something called EMP mitigation, electromagnetic pulse. Yeah. A solar flare, what they call a corona mass ejection that comes from the sun, could literally wipe out all of the electricity in a matter of minutes across the entire globe. All communications, all electricity, even transportation is shut down. And it would be shut down for 30 years. They say to rebuild our infrastructure, we cost billions of dollars from a single event that happened in the sun. So that one single event could shut us down overnight. We think the coronavirus would kill a lot of people. That itself would kill millions of people. Pandemics, climate change, EMP events are all things that we should be thinking about and developing plans around. Yes, and we're working on ways to do that. I'm also working with our wind turbines to make them EMP resistant as well. So those are some of the things I'm worried about. We barely missed one of those events in 2012. It was nine days late hitting the Earth environment. The same one in 1859 that took all the telegraph systems off the grid, out of the environment. We missed it by nine days. A lot of people don't realize how close we were to shutting down our society in 2012. So I'm looking at the overall environment. I'm looking at ways that we can help out across the environment, across the world. And our technology is a piece of it. I very much hope you succeed. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up. And I'm going to wrap it up with 
a wrap. For three whole weeks, you were out of power because heavy winds knocked out the tower. You told me that when God began it, he made us the stewards of the planet. His technology is hardly heard, and it won't kill a single bird. He wants to keep the wildlife intact and have a very low environmental impact. The prototype for his product says it'll have a hundred-year life, and it was funded by the 401k of his wife. A lot of products have a dangerous plastic mix, but there's no toxic SF6. From his dad entrepreneurial lessons he's been chasing, his father was a cement mason. 3D printing was a great decision, but he needed great precision. It's possible we could lose all electricity with one single EMP. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. One of my hopes after listening to Robert discuss American Wind's product is that it can work in conjunction with distributed solar farms, placed where the shadows won't reduce production, but close enough to share infrastructure and produce inexpensive, clean power when solar isn't at peak generation. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Robert, well, <laughs> his wife, risked their 401k when they set out to develop an improved wind generator, one that was less intrusive, smaller and quieter, and could be located closer to where people use energy. Not being satisfied with the status quo and taking risks is critical to mitigating climate change. Thank you.